Well, the question that this passage raises, among others, the question maybe to ask as we head into it is this, how do you love a religious play actor? How do you love a religious play actor? You know, in Matthew 22, Jesus has just had this interchange between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these disputes, these backs and forths where they've challenged his authority, they've challenged his teaching ability. And one of those, one of the last ones, is a lawyer, a lawyer from the Pharisees asked him, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus actually gives him the top two, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what we said when we walked through that is to love your neighbor as yourself, there's no exclusion on who your neighbor is. Your neighbor could be your literal neighbor. Your neighbor could be your family member. Your neighbor could be a fellow member at the church. Your neighbor could be your enemy. Jesus commands us to love your enemies. Well, what we see here in Matthew 23 is Jesus loving his enemies. And how does he love them? How does he love religious play actors. He pronounces woe upon them. We have to say that this is a loving act of Jesus. There's not a time when Jesus isn't loving. And this is what it looks like for Jesus to love religious play actors. Now, let me just back up a minute. Remember, like I just said, Jesus has finished these disputes with the leadership of Israel, and he has shown himself to be the supreme teacher by the end of chapter 22. And then the last time we were in Matthew, we were in verses 1 through 12. And in verses 1 through 12, Jesus shifts because he's been talking primarily to the leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests and the elders of the people. He's been primarily talking to them. But then in chapter 23, verse 1, he shifts to talking to the crowds and his disciples. And effectively what he says is, Stop listening to these guys. Stop listening to these guys. Why? Well, because they say one thing. They take this authority on themselves as being in the seat of Moses to interpret the law. And yet, based on what they do, you shouldn't listen to them because they totally go against what they say. And not only that, they are people who do what they do to be seen, to be noticed by others. So stop listening to them. So Jesus takes a break from addressing the leadership of Israel primarily, although the crowds and the disciples are there, then to primarily addressing the crowds and the disciples, although the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the leaders of the people are still there. And now what he does is he shifts his audience again in verse 13 to now directly address the scribes and the Pharisees. And what he does is he pronounces a series of seven woes on the, this group. And we're to understand the scribes and the Pharisees, we've said this multiple times, but it bears repeating, the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the, the scribes had an official role in Israel to interpret the law, to apply the law. And some of them, some of the scribes were Pharisees, some of them were aligned with the temple and with the Sadducees. And then we have the Pharisees themselves. The Pharisees don't really have an official role in Israel. They're more of like a grassroots movement, but they are people who have high respect for interpreting and applying and teaching the law. And so when we see this grouping of scribes and Pharisees, who are we talking to? Well, we're talking about the same people that Jesus has been addressing in the temple for a great deal of time now. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the leaders of the people, the Sadducees. I think Matthew at this point is just bundling them all together into this group. And they are his enemies. That's been very clear. 
and he loves them by pronouncing woe upon them. What is a woe? You use these words, and then you wonder, well, what does that actually mean, a woe? A woe, in a general sense, is a declaration of, uh, of sorrow, of disaster. And it can range. Uh, there are some parts in Matthew where Jesus pronounces a woe, and it's more pitiable. It's like pity uh, um, on someone because of some coming disaster or state that's going to come about. Or it can be, as it is here, it can be a declaration of judgment, of judgment. That disaster, divine disaster, is coming upon you, and you need to know about it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. This follows in the train of what happens in the Old Testament. You see the Old Testament, and God sends prophets. He sends prophets to confront the leadership of Israel and the nation itself. And the prophet, speaking for God, will often say, Woe, judgment is coming. A disaster, a pitiable state is coming upon you because of your sin. But there's something special about Jesus pronouncing woe. Because as Matthew and the rest of the New Testament testifies, Jesus is the judge. He is not only a, like a prophet and saying, um, speaking on behalf of the judge and saying, God's judgment is coming upon you for your sin. He speaks as the judge and pronouncing woe and disaster. Horrible, severe judgment to the scribes and the Pharisees. He speaks to them as the ultimate judge. Why does he do this? Just to give you a little indication about where we're going. One, he's doing it for, remember, his, this, the crowds and the disciples are still standing there. So part of what he's doing is continuing to warn them. Don't listen to these guys, even as he goes on the avertible attack to the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. But he is also, my argument is, he is loving them. Why? Why would I say that pronouncing judgment, severe judgment, on Jesus' enemies is love, because even though as we walk through these woes, and we're only going to get to four this week, we'll get to the next three next week, the final three next week, even though Jesus calls these guys sons of hell, and it's very clear, it's very bleak, their outlook is pretty much sealed, Jesus is giving them full disclosure of what's coming their way, with, I believe, the slight hope that they might turn and repent. These people are hard, and they need a hard word to shake them by the shoulders, to wake them up, if they might possibly repent. And that is love. So as we walk through this passage today, the first four woes, here's the big idea. Here's the big idea for Matthew's audience, for Jesus' audience, for us, be warned about Jesus' severe judgment if you are a blind religious play actor. If you're here this morning and you're a blind religious play actor, you need to be warned. You need to be warned about Jesus' severe judgment coming. And even for those of us who were not in the same category of the scribes and Pharisees, by God's grace, we are still warned, like Jesus is warning his, the crowds and the disciples. So we need to be warned this morning. So let's walk through these and see the first woe. We'll go woe by woe, and we'll see the first woe in verse 13. And the pronouncement is this, severe judgment awaits you if you bl uh, block the way into the kingdom. 
Severe judgment awaits you if you block the way into the kingdom. Look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, we've talked about this before, and Jim's alluded to it, but just to be very clear, what is a hypocrite? Uh, uh, The word for hypocrite is really just the word play actor. Like they used it in Greek theater uh, for the person who's up on the stage. So we understand this. When someone gets on the stage, when we have an actor, we watch the movies today, right? We have an actor. What is happening there? The person is portraying a reality. They're portraying a reality that isn't actually there, right? So you watch a Marvel movie and you've got Robert Downey Jr. playing Iron Man. He's portraying a reality of being Iron Man that isn't actually real, We understand this. But that's the fundamental sense of the idea of a hypocrite. It's someone who presents externally a reality, a situation of life, who they are, an identity that isn't actually real and true to who they actually are. That is what a hypocrite is. That's what a play actor is. And Jesus has called uh, the scribes and the Pharisees throughout the book of Matthew. He's called them this, a play actor. They're doing what they do for external show, but there's no reality behind it. It may look really good, but there's no reality behind it. So that's what he starts off with. And he has that basic same refrain for all seven woes. But then what Jesus does for each of the woes is essentially he gives a reason. He's pronouncing severe judgment on these folks, on these purported teachers, on these play actors, but then he gives a reason in each case for why he's doing so. So what's the reason in this first case? For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor, you, uh, nor allow those who would enter to go in. So what is Jesus saying here? Um, uh, to understand what Jesus is asserting here, we need to remember the imagery that Jesus has been developing through Matthew of What does it mean to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because remember John the Baptist's message and Jesus' message and the message he gave to his disciples is repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Jesus and John aren't saying it's arrived. They're saying it's close. It's nearby. And that can, that goes along with the imagery that Jesus develops. You can think back as far as Matthew seven at the end of the sermon on the Mount, he talks about two ways. He talks about a way, a narrow way, leading to a narrow gate, leading to the future kingdom, as contrasted with a broad way, leading to a broad gate, leading to destruction. And so if you understand that imagery, that Jesus thinks about a narrow way, what is the narrow way? Well, the way starts, traveling on this way starts with repentance, turning allegiance from sin and self, and entrusting oneself to Jesus ultimately as the Messiah, that starts the journey. But then what the Sermon on the Mount shows is uh, if you start the journey as a disciple of Jesus, that's going to change your whole life. And you're going to walk in a narrow way of kingdom righteousness by God's grace through the power of the spirit, your whole life leading into the kingdom. But it starts. It starts with repentance and faith in Jesus. It's necessary to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah to start on this path. But what Jesus is here saying to the scribes and Pharisees is, you're barring the way. That's the idea. It's not so much that they're shutting the gate. It's that you can imagine this path, 
and you can imagine someone just standing there with their arms crossed, standing in the way, barring away. Thou shalt not go any further. You shall not pass. Why? Why? Well, in what way? What way are the scribes and the Pharisees doing this? They're not entering themselves. They're not on the way to the kingdom of heaven. But then those who are trying to go on this way, trying to travel on, they're stopping them. How? How are they stopping them? Well, like I said, the necessity of traveling on this path towards the kingdom of heaven is starting with and continues with acknowledging the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is uh, the incarnate son of God, the one who is going to rule over the whole world. But notice what the Pharisees do. Let's look at an example in Matthew 12. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. But you remember, this has been going on for some time. Let's look at uh, an example, a case study of doing what Jesus is talking about. Uh, Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that's Jesus, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Remember the title son of David means the Christ, the the Messiah, the one who is going to usher in God's kingdom and rule over God's kingdom. And so you see that Jesus is giving a trailer for the kingdom, a teaser for the kingdom. And then the crowds begin to wonder, it's like, huh, is this the Messiah? Because that's where the journey starts. But notice what do the Pharisees do? Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And then Jesus goes on to destruct, to destroy their logic and to argue, I'm doing these things by the Spirit of God, and I'm portraying, I'm giving you teasers for the coming kingdom. But that's an example of what Jesus is pronouncing woe on, judgment on the scribes and Pharisees in this first woe. You block the way of people into the kingdom because what are the Pharisees doing in Matthew 12? Uh, they're starting to, the, the crowds are starting to think, hey, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe we need to follow this guy. Maybe we need to become his disciples. But what do they do? They stand in the way. No, stop thinking that way. He's only doing this by Beelzebub. They're barring the way into the kingdom. They're not entering themselves, and they're stopping others. And for such a person as that, Jesus pronounces woe, severe, disastrous, painful judgment at God's hands, at his hands as the ultimate judge, because they're stopping people from entering life, from entering the kingdom, the one narrow way into the kingdom. Those who block people from embracing Jesus as the Christ and the only way to God have Jesus' severe judgment upon them. What does this look like in our time, in our culture? We don't have scribes and Pharisees in the same way, but uh, we definitely have teachers. We definitely have guides within the church and external to it. Here's one way, here's one sort of teaching that Jesus would pronounce woe on. You know, Jesus, he's just a good guy. He's got a lot of wisdom. He's a great teacher. Um, But, you know, know, he's just so nice, and he's all love, and all roads lead to God. That is teaching that Jesus would pronounce woe on. This exists in liberal Protestantism and has for many years and decades, 
where Jesus is no longer God, uh, all roads lead to heaven, and it goes under the name of Christianity. And Jesus pronounces woe, disastrous woe upon it. Here's another one. This one comes from our cultural leaders, uh, just as an example of this. Um, in, the, in Canada, and I believe also in the state of Oregon, something called conversion therapy is banned. It is illegal. What are they referring to? Well, when you talk to someone who's LGBTQ plus identity, you cannot say to them that is sin, that offends God. And uh, there's good news, though, that you can repent and place your faith in Jesus, and he will change you, and uh, you will have a joyful life. That is called conversion therapy in the eyes of the state, and it is banned. But Jesus pronounces woe and severe judgment on such teaching. Why? Why do I say that? Well, remember the narrow path, right? When, when you start that path through repentance and faith, it's also going to change your whole life. So you're going to live by Jesus' righteousness. So yes, there's no preconditions. Come to Jesus through repentance and faith, but be advised, he's going to change your whole life. And you must change. And if you're not changing, Jesus says that you're not going to enter. And so what are these folks doing, these cultural leaders who talk about, or, or, or lawgivers that say conversion therapy is banned, they are blocking people from the kingdom of heaven and they earn Jesus' woe. Or even related to this, you've heard Christian, quote-unquote, Christian teachers, and in the name of Christianity, in the name of Jesus, say that Jesus has absolutely no demands on your life. That you come and you believe and it's all good. Nothing has to change. You're good to go. Mind you, they're talking and using the language of repentance and faith, but they're saying, but you know, um, no one's perfect and your life doesn't need to change. Jesus would pronounce woe on such teaching because that is not Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is, yes, surrender, have repentance, entrust yourself totally to me to repay your sin debt in your place and to be your righteousness in your place. And then I'm going to change you. I'm going to baptize you by the Spirit, and I'm going to change your whole life so that you change. And if there is no change, there is no life, and there is no actual following of Jesus. And so Jesus would pronounce woe on such a teaching. What is Jesus doing here? You need to understand that this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is, starts with bad news. It starts with the bad news that you and I are all sinners. We have rebelled against the holy God. We deserve his wrath upon us. We all deserve woe. All of us in this room deserve woe, not because we've done a few naughty things, but because we've slapped the infinite holy God of the universe in the face and are rebels against his rule. We want to rule ourselves rather than submit to God. But the good news is, is that God the Son became man in order to die in place of his people to cover their sins and to live the righteous life in their place that they could never live, such that the one who surrenders and places their faith in Jesus and follows him as disciple will enjoy not only not being an enemy, but being an adopted son or daughter of the Father, complete reconciliation, such that we can enter the kingdom and enjoy the triune God for all eternity. And Jesus is saying, the only way to get there is through me, through the Messiah, and those like the scribes and Pharisees that bar the way, woe to them. Severe judgment upon them. 
And that is the first woe. Severe judgment awaits you if you block the way into the kingdom. Now we move on to the next woe, which is in verse 15. Now I want to pause here and make a comment. If you have an NASB or you have a KJV or an NKJV, uh, and there might be a couple others that I'm forgetting, uh, you might have verse 14 in your text. Um, you will probably see a little footnote in your Bible that says some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this, this text in Matthew. And that is the case, that most likely using the science of textual criticism, uh, this, this verse 14 is not in Matthew. It is in Luke and it is in Mark. So Jesus said it. Uh, but what happened is scribes would tend to harmonize, so they would bring stuff over from other Gospels into other Gospels. Probably not in Matthew, but it is in Mark and Luke. But since we're in Matthew, we're going to listen to what Matthew has to say, and we're going to go on to the next woe in verse 15, which is this. Severe judgment awaits you if you convert people to hellish religion. Severe judgment awaits you if you convert people to hellish religion. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Same thing, same refrain. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, play actors. But why? Why the woe in this case? For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What's a proselyte? A proselyte is a convert. So when I go out, uh, or if I'm talking to my neighbor and I start sharing the gospel, that's called proselytizing, right? Um, usually it's, in our culture, it's a derogatory term. But the idea is you are trying to speak to someone and you're trying to persuade them to change their views, to convert. And the scribes and Pharisees are doing that uh, to convert people to Judaism and their particular flavor of Judaism. And you can actually see um, this happening in the rest of the New Testament. As, uh, if you look at Acts and the rest of the New Testament letters, uh, Paul or other apostles are going around and they're proclaiming the gospel and there's converts to the gospel, to the true gospel. And then what happens often for Paul uh, is that these false teachers, these Judaizing leaders come in behind and say, well, you really need to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. And that is what? That is um, people like the scribes and Pharisees seeking to proselytize to Judaism. So Jesus is saying, you do this, and you do a great deal of effort at it. And you can see that in Acts. They put a great deal of effort in coming behind Paul and kind of undermining his work or trying to add to it in a wrong way. And Jesus is saying, you put a great deal of effort into this. It, you work hard at this. And, you know, on the surface, it sounds good because you're trying to bring people to the one true God, right? That's in uh, the Old Testament. Uh, how do you, how do, uh, be before the coming of Jesus and the gospel mission, how do you come to know the one true God? You come to Israel, eventually you become part of Israel to know the one true God. And so it sounds good on the surface, but what does Jesus say? When you do this, when you actually make a convert, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourselves, a child of Gehenna. Now, what does that mean? First, it implies that Jesus, at least at this point, sees these folks he's talking to as uh, under, they're going to hell. They're children of hell. They're children of God's judgment. But worse, when these guys convert someone, they're making the person they're converting twice as much a child of hell. 
And we can kind of understand that. Like, if you think of, you've probably seen this before, um, you know, there's someone who's teaching another person and that person becomes a disciple and the disciple can often become more radical than the teacher, right? And so that's kind of what Jesus is saying. He's like, you're radicalizing your proselytes to the point where, yeah, you're a child of hell and you're confronting them double in that state for your disciples, for your converts. Now here we got to pause and like, well, what is Jesus what is Jesus thinking about? What is he talking about? What is the religion of hell? We could ask it that way. Well, it's this. As we've seen in Matthew multiple times, what is the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees? The religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, first, is externalism with no heart. Jesus talks about how, and quotes Isaiah, that the scribes and Pharisees, they draw near to me with their lips but their heart is far from me. They do all the right stuff externally. They look good. They're all leafed out, but there's no fruit. There's no substance. So that's part of their religion. Do the right things externally, but don't worry about what's going on in the heart. That is the religion of hell. Uh, Here's another part of their religion, relying on natural advantages. So when John the Baptist is preaching, uh, some of the Sadducees and the Pharisees come up and, uh, and John says, don't even begin to say to me, you're children of Abraham. Meaning what? Oh, you guys are Jewish because you were born Jewish and you're automatically in. That's relying on natural advantages. That's part of the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. And it's part of the religion of hell. To rely on natural advantages instead of God's grace through faith. Here's another part of their religion elevating the tradition of man over God's word. Uh, Jesus has done this and engaged this multiple times. You, you have this tradition, you have this way of doing things, and matter of fact, we're going to see it in the next woe, but you actually undermine God's word. You would elevate the tradition of man over God's word. And so what the idea is, when the scribes and Pharisees are making proselytes, they're inculcating this uh, this externalism with no heart, relying on natural advantages, being part of Israel, and then elevating the tradition of man over God's word. And Jesus says, woe to you, severe judgment on you who are doing such thing. This goes beyond the first woe. The first woe, you're just blocking people, right? You're just blocking people from entering the kingdom. This one goes farther because it's like you're not only blocking those people, you're bringing those people into a hell-bound religion and you're confirming them in it not only that you're blocking people from the kingdom, now you're, con- you're swallowing them up for hell. There's a progression in the woes. So what's the application for us? Those who corrupt people into mere externalism, relying on natural advantages or mere traditions of men, have Jesus' severe judgment upon them. And let's be really, let's give some examples. Let's name some names. Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is apostate. It elevates the tradition of man over God's word. It says that you need, uh, you need faith and grace and works in order to be saved. And you say, well, wait a minute. Something you said earlier kind of sounds similar to that. No, there's a key difference. The journey starts through repentance and faith and being bound to Jesus. And then only subsequently... As you are bound to Jesus, yes, he will change your life. Yes, you will do good works, but empowered by the Spirit. Versus muster it up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Add some works to your faith in order to be pleasing to God. That is damnable, hellish religion. 
The same holds true for Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or they don't believe he's the divine son of God, and they are a, a, a false religion. Same with Mormonism. And in both of those cases, we are adding externalism, relying on natural advantages, traditions of men over God, and that is religion that earns Jesus' woe and condemnation. Oh, but it hits closer to home. Jesus' woe falls on prosperity gospel preachers like Joel Osteen, who say that, well, let's, God, you want, God wants your best life now. What does that sound like? Natural advantages, the traditions of men. And so you believe, and God's going to give you what you want. That is the religion of hell, and it earns Jesus' severe judgment. It even shows up in some of the things we've seen lately with social justice and wokeness. Because what has happened is, those aren't bad things to talk about. Not bad to talk about social justice. The Bible does in the Old Testament. Not bad to talk about race. The Bible does. But what has happened in the conversation is everything is about those things. Everything is about the external realities of social justice and race. And in order for you to be pleasing to God, you must do these certain things. You've got to, uh, you know, uh, do whatever social justice program, or you've got to confess your whiteness, or you've got to put a black square on your Facebook profile in order to be acceptable to God. That is religion that is external only, that's relying on natural advantages and the mere traditions of men, and it earns Jesus woe and severe judgment. Again, I'm not saying it's not right to have those conversations. I'm saying that when you elevate them, that this is all that religion is about, then you've flipped into the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. Even more, we can get closer to home. There is a religion that can exist within a true church that is a hellish religion. A religion that's just about doing the right external things. It sounds like this. I was born into a Christian family, so I'm a Christian. I'm a good person, so I'm a Christian. I go to church because I'm a Christian. I give, so I'm a Christian. That is not Christianity. Christianity is realizing I am a sinner. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve his woe. I deserve disaster, divine disaster, the hands of the sun to fall upon me and bowing the knee and say, I'm done being my self-ruler. I'm done living for sin. I repent and I entrust myself fully and totally and only to Jesus Christ to earn uh, my, uh, the righteousness that I need before the Father in my place. Through his death on the cross, his resurrection, his righteous life lived and accounted to me. But in a true church, even in a true church, doing the right things, doing the right external things, thinking I was born into a family, so I'm a Christian family, so I'm good to go, or in some way elevating the traditions of men, that is religion that has Jesus' severe judgment upon it. So we've seen Jesus' severe judgment awaits you if you block the way into the kingdom. Jesus' severe judgment awaits you if you convert people to hellish religion. And next, we see this, severe judgment awaits you if you teach that earthly rather than heavenly accountability is greater. Severe judgment awaits you if you teach that earthly rather than heavenly accountability is greater. Look at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides! 
So rather than hypocrites, what does Jesus call these people? He calls them blind guides. Why? Because they're teachers. They're guiding people. They're leading people. Woe to you blind guides. Okay, why is the woe coming? Who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Now, what in the world is this all about? This is kind of strange. We don't understand because we're not living in that time. So let's, let's do a little bit of work. So the idea here is, is here's some of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. They're teaching, when is your oath binding? When is your word? When are you bound by your word? And the idea is that um, they, had dis- they had agreed that in judgment that uh, when you make an oath like, uh, may, may such and such, I'll do such and such, and may I give something to God if I don't keep up on my word. And so the idea is that if you are able to give something to God, make some sort of contribution, you know, from whatever you have to God, then you're bound. But if you can't give something, then you can't be bound by it. You can't give the temple. The temple is built by God, by his people. You can't give that. But the gold of the temple is something that can be given. Therefore, because you can give the gold of the temple, you're bound by your word. You're not bound by the word of swearing by the temple because you can't give the temple, but you can give gold. And so you're bound by that. It's a human sort of accountability. That's what oaths are, right? You swear an oath. May such and such happen to me, or may, uh, may I do this if I fail to keep my word? What's it all about? Accountability. And what Jesus is saying is, uh, is pointing out that the scribes and the Pharisees are emphasizing human accountability to keep their word. Well, what does he think about this? Verse 17, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Here's Jesus' argument. When we talk about sanctity, the idea of holiness, Whatever is nearer to God's presence needs to be holy, needs to be appropriated for God's use. So uh, the gold of the temple is just gold, but when it comes into the temple and is used for the temple, then because the temple is where God's presence, the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth dwells, the gold becomes set apart for God's use and is holy. But where did the holiness come from? The holiness came from the temple itself, and not just the temple, but who dwells in the temple, the presence of God. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, you guys are fools because you're talking about human accountability, horizontal accountability, and you're, you're totally ignoring the vertical accountability. Who's going to ultimately hold you accountable for your words is God, the God who dwells in the temple. He gives another example, verse 18. And you say, if someone, anyone swears by the altar, so we're still in the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. And it's the same logic here. All right, you can't give the altar. That's instituted by God. But you can give a sacrifice. So if you swear by the altar, that, that your, your oath doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's meaningless. But if you swear by the sacrifice that you're putting on the altar, the thing that you offer, 
then you're held accountable. Again, it's horizontal accountability. And notice the reasoning that's happening here. The reasoning is, how do I get out of keeping my word? That's fundamentally what these rulings are about. Well, you say that, and it sounds good as an oath, but you can wiggle out of it as long as you didn't invoke something where you're horizontally accountable, like a sacrifice or giving a gift like gold to the temple. What does Jesus say? You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Uh, Jesus is talking about Exodus 29, where the altar, anything that touches the altar becomes holy. So again, the flow of holiness is from the altar to the gift. And Jesus is saying, well, therefore, the altar's got to be greater. And you're held accountable. Not by a human horizontal gift and accountability, but by God, a vertical accountability, because God is the one who sees all of our actions and our words. Jesus draws conclusions. Verse 20, so whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything above it. Now, Jesus isn't just talking about the sacrifice. You need to understand it. What is the thought of the altar in the temple? Think of the altar in the temple like a portal. The altar in the temple is a portal between, it's, it's supposed to visually represent, now that it's actually this, but it's supposed to visually represent the connection between heaven and earth. In the Old Testament, the premier sacrifice was the burnt offering. And what you would do with the burnt offering is you'd put it on the altar and you would burn most of it up. And it literally says it turns up into smoke. Where does smoke go? Up. The idea is you're transforming. It's just a visual portrayal. It wasn't actually happening this way, but it's a visual portrayal of this offering, this sacrifice, yes, being made holy by the altar, but then transformed into such a way that it becomes an aroma that God smells and is pleased by in heaven. It's a link between heaven and earth. So when Jesus says here, whatever you swear by the altar, you swear by it and everything above it, he's really saying you're swearing not just by the altar, but by God in heaven. And he says effectively the same thing going on. Verse 21, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. Who dwells in the temple? God does. God's going to hold you accountable for your words and your actions. Verse 22, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is alluding to Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. So you swear by heaven. You're swearing by the throne of God and by the one who sits on it, namely God himself. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you guys think you're, you're, you're able to escape because you are only thinking in terms of horizontal human accountability, but who's actually holding you accountable? Oh, your oaths are binding because it's God in heaven who's holding you accountable to keep your oaths. What's the lesson? What's the woe? Those who focus on earthly accountability to the exclusion of heavenly accountability have Jesus' severe judgment upon them. Now, let me be clear. Earthly accountability is not wrong. Jesus has, uh, the, uh, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have designed earthly accountability. But when you focus on her earthly horizontal accountability between man and man to the exclusion of heavenly accountability, that's what Jesus is targeting. That's what Jesus is targeting. We've already said it, but here's the reality. All our words and our deeds are before God. He will hold you accountable for every word and every deed that you do because we live life in God's presence. 
We often get worried about our words and our deeds before others. How are people going to think about me? Am I going to be held accountable for this? Can I wiggle out of it? But the greater concern is the God who will hold us accountable for what we say and do. Keep your word. Don't try to wriggle out of it because you think you can, you can on a human level. Don't we do that? Let me scheme and see if I can wiggle out of it on a human level. How do we do this? We do it when we're working, right? Well, the boss isn't around, so even though I promised him a full labor and work, you know, it's, you know I, can, I can look on Facebook, I can look at that text because we're worried about human accountability and not God's accountability. Or maybe you're the business owner and you've made commitments and contracts and oaths and all of these sorts of things and you think about, well, how can I get out of it? Or the auditor isn't looking. I'll be okay. Oh, there's one who's holding you accountable and it is the God in heaven. So you notice how these woes have progressed. They progressed from you're blocking someone from the kingdom now you're swallowing people up if, uh, if you're following the scribes and the Pharisees to uh, doubly hellish religion. And then Jesus focuses in on some of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. So he's delving in. Okay, what is the hellish religion they're teaching? Well, they've got some things to say about oaths. We've also got some things to say about their treatment of the law, which brings us to our final woe for today. There's three more next week. And it's this. Severe judgment awaits you if you skew the values of God's commands. Severe judgment awaits you if you skew the value of God's commands. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, play actors. Why? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What is Jesus talking about? The law in the Old Testament does give command that whatever you produce, you give a tenth. Now, you got to think, they're an agrarian society, right? So when they're talking about whatever you produce, we're talking like wheat and barley and things like this. But if you have a garden out back and you're growing some mint or some dill or some cumin, uh, that's under the law as well. And Jesus actually agrees with that. That's part of the command that, yeah, you should be tithing your mint and your dill and your cumin. But what is, he, what is he getting after the scribes and Pharisees for? Because you're all fastidious about that, scribes and Pharisees, to the neglect, to the uh, neglect of the weightier matters of the law. There are greater and lesser commands in God's law. Just because God gives a command doesn't mean it's as equal weight as something else. Doesn't mean it's not important, it just means that there's weightier things. And what weightier things does Jesus bring up? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. I believe Jesus is alluding to Micah 6. You can turn there if you want, or you can listen. Micah 6, 6 through 8. Micah 6, 6 through 8. This, Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. Um, 
Israel at the time of Micah and Isaiah is very much the same as Jesus' day. And in the middle of Micah 6, there's this question of how do you approach God? Let's pick up in Micah 6, 6. With what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to, before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now, that's a normal practice. You would come before God with a burnt offering and calves a year old. But then notice how Micah amplifies this. Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Now, that's extreme. Right? We've moved from something that is kind of doable and regular to now something extreme and even more extreme. Look at how verse 7 ends. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now he's talking about child sacrifice. You see how it progresses? Well, what's the idea? How do I approach God? Now, why in the world would Jesus be picking this passage? Well, what is the tithing all about? The tithing is a way of approaching God. But he's saying, you scribes, Pharisees, and uh, you scribes and Pharisees, you're fastidious about the mint and dill and cumin, which doesn't even rank on Micah's scale. But Micah says those things are insufficient. Look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Those are the same three things that Jesus mentions. He's saying, you, you're fastidious scribes and Pharisees about the legitimate. Now note that, that's legitimate. The mint and the dill and the cumin and tithing them, that's a totally legitimate command. But you're focused on that, and you're ignoring justice to your fellow man. You're ignoring mercy to those under your leadership. And you're not faithful. Faithful meaning what? What did Micah 6.8 say? Walking humbly with God. That is the walk of faith. One repenting and placing their faith in God's way, God's chosen means. And it's a faithful faith, a continuous faith throughout one's life. And so Jesus says, you ought to have done, you ought to have done the big things, the weightier things, without neglecting the others. Yeah, tithe your mint and dill and cumin, but you got to have justice and mercy and faithfulness, these weighty commands of the law. You blind guides. You're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's a visual portrayal of what they're doing. A gnat and a camel are both unclean in terms of the Old Testament law in Leviticus 11. But one's kind of very small and one's very big. And you could spend all this effort straining out a gnat of whatever your drink is. And then you could go to feast on a camel, which is equally as unclean, and you've got more of it. And that's Jesus' point. You're gobbling, you're feasting on a camel. And you're unclean while you're straining out a gnat. What's it all about? Notice Jesus is not saying that's an illegitimate command and this is a legitimate command. He's saying they're both legitimate commands, but you've skewed the value. You've skewed the value of two legitimate commands. Those who focus on even legitimate religious minutiae, let me pause there. The word religion is not a dirty word. We sometimes think of religion as a dirty word. Christianity is a religion, okay? But there's really ultimately two types of religion in the world. There's the true way of Christianity, and then there's hellish religion, 
That's what we've been saying. Religion's not a dirty word. But what Jesus is pointing out here, those who focus on even legitimate religious minutiae to the exclusion of weightier commands have Jesus' severe judgment upon them. Note what Jesus is saying, saying if you focus on a legitimate command of God to the exclusion of more important commands, you have God's judgment upon you. When the external becomes more important than the internal, when the things of God become an external system to control, then the minutiae grab more attention than things of central importance. How do we we fight this? Because we are all prone to this. It is easy to focus on the external. It is easy to do the things that are externally good and to ignore what's going on with our heart. We can become calcified. We can focus on the minutiae and miss the weightier things of God. How do we fight this? You got to be in a pattern of reminding yourself of the things that matter most to God. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel constantly, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and you, and that only happens through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection on your behalf. Here's one way this shows up. Pet doctrines. We all have them. Legitimate pet doctrines, things that are true, and we can get so sucked into the legitimacy, and we're so excited about this thing that we neglect other things that's when we start to earn Jesus' woe. We got to keep the central things the central things. Note, doesn't mean that you get rid of the minor things. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying everything has its place. Everything has its right weight in God's eyes. But when you focus on religious minutia to the exclusion of weightier commands, then you earn Jesus' severe judgment. So what has Jesus said? Severe judgment awaits you if you block the way into the kingdom. Severe judgment awaits you if you convert people to hellish religion. Severe judgment awaits you if you teach that earthly rather than heavenly accountability is greater. Severe judgment awaits you if you skew the values of God's commands. And Jesus isn't done. He's got three more coming next week. But remember the question we started with. How do you love a religious play actor? You do what Jesus does. You expose them and warn them of Jesus' judgment in hope. And Jesus' hope is pretty slight in Matthew 23, but in the hope that you might move them to repentance. Um, you guys ever get calluses on your feet or on your fingers and they get really hard and you can't feel anything? How do you feel something through a callus? You need a pretty sharp needle, don't you? Pretty sharp lance. That's what Jesus is doing. These folks have become callous and hardened and he is shaking them by the shoulders. He is driving a needle through their callus into their hearts and saying, you are under God's judgment. And I don't think even in Matthew 23, Jesus has quite, quite removed the hope of repentance. In fact, in Acts, we do see some of the Pharisees repent. Because they understand, as you see it in Peter's sermon on Pentecost, that they're under God's judgment and they repent. Maybe you're a play actor here sitting this morning. I may not know it. 
Your friends and family may not know it. You may not know it. You may be self-deceived. But Jesus knows it. We all struggle with this. How, how do you, you're like, well, how do I know then? Ask the Holy Spirit to search you and make known to you any religious play acting. Also ask those who are closest to your family and your friends. They'll tell you if you really want to hear it, if you're a play actor, if you're a hypocrite. And from what you find, humble yourself. Surrender. And seek forgiveness and change through Jesus because being a religious play actor is not... Jesus died for that. He died to save religious play actors from having to hide and cloak who they really are from others. Jesus died for his people's sin, totally and bearing the woe on the cross, totally. And living a perfectly righteous life in place of a totally sincere life in for religious play actors, such that they can repent, have faith in Jesus, and be justified in God's eyes. So be warned about Jesus' severe judgment if you are a blind religious play actor, but come to faith, repent, and entrust yourself to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you are tender and tough. And the word that you've given us today is a tough word. And you know what we need. Lord, I just pray that you would, we all, all of us start out as religious play actors. We all start by cloaking, trying to hide, creating fig leaves for ourselves. But that's why you came in mercy and in love, even for your enemies to die in their place and to make us yours. Lord, if there are any who are self-deceived this, here this morning, wake them up. If there are any who know who they are really and truly before you, drive them to repentance, lest judgment increase upon them. And Lord, with these sober thoughts, we now enter into the time of your supper, both highlighting its severity and its goodness all at the same time. Help us and prepare us to partake of the supper in a worthy manner. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.